I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. Gavin Casey here, as always, joined by my colleague Murray Kinsella and delighted to be joined as well by Bernard Jackman. This podcast is brought to you in association with William Hill. Remember to gamble responsibly and visit dunglouis.net for more information. Murray, how are you? I'm good, Gav. How are you? I'm super, thanks. I feel as though results like last weekend's give you an extra 10%, 15% to carry you through the week. It's been a busy enough week, um, but I have uh, definitely a pep in my step. I, I was wondering, actually, from your point of view, when you're covering a game like that as a journalist, do you get to enjoy it while you're covering it, or does it take a second watch and for some of that dust to settle before you can really consume it as a kind of a... I know you're not a supporter necessarily, but as an Irishman. You definitely enjoy it in the moment just for the, the good play. I mean, that Keith Earls try, no matter who scores that, that's a moment to savour. Um, and I often find myself, even when Ireland concede a try like that, that I'm thoroughly enjoy, enjoying that moment for the quality of the play and Jack Conan's try as well. So, yeah, I always I always enjoy it for what it is on the pitch and then you watch it back and you appreciate a little bit more about the, the detail around it. But it's great and everyone's boosted by it and I know it's like just from our data and everything people are a lot more interested in reading about ireland being good than ireland being um middle of the road so it's good for business as well certainly is how's business on your end vertex like yeah great um yeah, i was delighted with the performance um didn't see it coming hold my hand up um and hope it's the turning point now for, for this team to to go out and do that consistently but one person who did see this performance coming lads was a, a 42 member by the name of barry lampkin uh, Barry's been in touch with the show many times. Uh, he sends these kind of biblically long questions and messages. And he had sent one uh, a couple of weeks ago or in, in advance of that England game, laying out why he thought Ireland were actually moving in the right direction. And he felt like he might have been the maybe the, the when you're the only, uh, what what's that kind of phrase, when you're the only person in the room who can't, who thinks everyone else is insane or whatever, you, you might be the insane person, basically. I'm botching that. But he uh, has been on to us again because... Um, the fact that I didn't read out the question was obviously a, a source of great ire to him. Uh, it would have vindicated him in many ways. And he was saying, I'm not letting you away with it again this week. So I've slightly rephrased it, but basically, basically the same question as last week. Uh, from Bernard's experience of taking over teams in France and Wales, would he agree that Farrell is actually quite far along the way when it comes to developing new uh, team identity and style of play? We are only an interrupted year and a half into his tenure, and we already seem to have developed a new identity by being a pain in the ass to play against, contesting rocks, lineouts, and just being not uh, being not being such a nice uh, not being such nice chaps anymore. Sorry, Farrell has also given significant time to eight players who weren't regulars before, and team selection is far from a foregone conclusion. The defence and attack are far from the finished articles, but can we expect much more than this, considering? that he is looking to implement change in a group that is made up of players who are already conditioned to the systems of their provinces and the Joe era. So surely it is to be expected that there is more going on behind closed doors and training than we're seeing in games. And also, would the lads agree that this summer tour is crucial to Farrell's plans to speed up development? I'll throw that one to yourself, Rich. Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, I actually did a bit of research on on kind of how you create a high-performing team and, and there's a uh, a professor called Tuckman who has a, a process. There's four stages, right? Norming, uh, no, sorry, forming, storming, norming, performing. And 
there's a dip. So you, you norming is here, and then you go down to to the storming part. Is that's where everybody gets used to this new regime, and then things start to uh, fall into place, which is the, is the norming stage, and then hopefully then you go to performing. So what the the great coaches or the great organizations try and do is reduce that dip when you're when you're storming, when everyone's getting used to this new environment. And in fairness to Farrell. I actually don't think the game plan is massively different, to be honest. I don't think it's hugely different than Joe Schmidt. There was a little bit more uh, shifting of the ball pre-contact um, at, at the weekend. But uh, we always have really good attacking set-piece strike plays under Joe. That wasn't the, the issue. So I don't think we've revolutionised how we're playing at all. And maybe that's... Maybe he over-promised or Mike over-promised at the start. Or maybe the public expected um a huge shift in how we're going to play i still think we're we're hard at the breakdown um we're pretty methodical in how we play um but what the big change has obviously been the environment the the leadership group um players taking responsibility and oh let's be honest a relaxed environment it's gone from being a very intense difficult environment to a relaxed environment and it has taken a while to see the, the performance and look at we still have I look at that was a great performance in itself but we probably need to see three or four of those out of five games to say oh we've turned the corner um but it is uh, it looks like we've come out of that as I said storming phase now where everybody is is more used to camp and more used to what the way the coaches are going to set up um obviously the O'Connell factor even though it had an immediate effect in terms of what he's responsible for that was probably another bit of adjustment for the group, you know, to 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 have him come into the squad and obviously adapt to what what he wants. Um, so yeah, I I think we probably COVID probably made it longer. Um, I think we were still right as pundits to to ask questions um, because I felt there was a dis the divide between what the players felt they were doing and what we felt they were doing as pundits in terms of performances, but. Um, now we have that kind of talismanic or, or signature win. I think it can be huge for them. I think it can let everybody settle down. They believe now in the in the in the methods really on the basis of a of a big scalp and and again it's terrible because I think England have the are, are a very good team, but they finished fifth, right? So maybe if you're if you're negative minded, you'd say, oh, it's not a good scalp anymore. There's obviously issues there, but in in, in reality, we've we've lost them four times in a row. Um, we needed to beat them. We did, and beat them comprehensively. And I think, yeah, I think we've turned a corner. Hopefully, and uh, we just build on this now and get consistent. Nobody battered England either, to be fair. I know Wales won by about sixteen, I think, in the end, and that's a similar margin to ourselves. But just contextually, thought Ireland were by far the most dominant team against them. They probably made less or fewer inroads against Ireland than they did against, say, uh, Wales and Scotland. Um, Murray, about the summer tour then, because what is next for this Ireland team? What does Andy Farrell have to do next? What did the squad have to do next as a collective to continue signs of progress that we saw last weekend? Mm, they're still scheduled to go to the Pacific Islands. Who knows what's going to happen there? I think they're actually still mapping out the logistics and things like that, but we know that could change. They're definitely going to have summer tests if it means staying at home and, and playing another makeshift tournament. That's what they'll do. They have a test window there and every nation's going to want to play. So there will be games this summer and it's important that they use it as what it is a development tour it's it's that tour during alliance 
And even if that gets cancelled, which is still possible, I think Ireland should use it to develop squad and players and find out a little bit more. Absolutely, Andy Farrell has done a lot of that. Um, and I think we have flagged that, to be fair, in terms of getting new faces in there, giving guys opportunity. Some of them have really grasped them. And even when he looks back in the Six Nations, he'll be delighted with, with that aspect of it. Even someone like Jamison Gibson Park getting three starts, albeit Conor Murray being injured. But that does add a little bit of depth. And Hugo Keenan grabbing hold of his place, playing all 400 minutes of the championship um, and little bits and pieces like that. So that has been a, a positive of it, as well as some really good foundations there. The, the defensive line out, which has been mentioned just, just before and throughout the championship, best in the Six Nations, scrum best in the Six Nations, breakdown quickest attacking ball in the Six Nations, as well as a really rampant jackal turnover threat, as well as a choke tackle threat, as we saw the last day. They're all really good, solid foundations and absolutely the attack fired the last day some really good strikes off, off set piece not just the Keith Earls one but the Ian Henderson line break as well that nearly led to a beautiful Keith Earls second try um, as well as the 23 phase passage which the coaches will be I just have been ridiculously pleased with because it's all the stuff they've been talking about um, and their kicking game as well it has come up with big moments even that passage included one where Keenan goes back and takes Sexton's kick if you think of the the Henshaw try in Murrayfield that comes from a, a Sexton contestable as well. So there, there are plenty of good working parts there, but I don't think you can overlook the attacking inefficiencies in the other games. Their scrum launches have been really poor as the, the line-out attack until that England game hadn't really clicked and, and some of their phase stuff, as we discussed quite a bit, and I think fairly still, even looking back at it, was poor and the decision-making on the end of it just wasn't of the standard they were aiming for. So they'll definitely be realistic about that. I think defensively, again, some of the stats are pretty good. They've conceded, uh, sorry, they haven't conceded as, as many as as, as as the other nations. Uh, they've limited line breaks to a, to a degree, but there have been big slips that have been costly. Some of it individual, obviously, but again, there's there's loads of bits to work on there. So there'll be a realism definitely in, in Ireland camp. Um, and I thought they were actually, like I thought the post-match stuff from Farrell and from a couple of the other players was good in that sense. They weren't, they weren't kind of, we told you so. Um, even though they had kind of promised that it was coming, there was an awareness from them that what they'd been talking about hadn't actually come to fruition on the on the match days, that they'd felt really good about what they were doing in training, but it hadn't clicked on the pitch. So um, yeah, they didn't quite rub our faces in it, but <laughs> I definitely called it wrong as well in terms of that game. Didn't see it coming to that extent in any way, to be honest, and not even in that manner as well. So credit to them for finishing on a high for, winning three games in a row when their backs were against the wall. Um, and again, it just underlines the, myself and Bert were talking about before, the kind of narrow, narrow margins in, in test rugby. Like if Mario Itoje scores right there at the start of the game, it's different. If Tom Curry's hand is a little bit higher or a little bit earlier, he, he stops that and, and it's different. But Ireland came out on the right side of those um, and it was a really excellent performance to kick them on to what would hopefully be another summer of development. Everyone was wrong, so don't feel too bad. Apart from our good friend Barry Lampkin. Sweet vindication for Barry. Sign him up. He should be sitting in this seat. Sign him up. Uh, one last question on Ireland before we move on from them. I'll throw this one to yourself, Bernard. It's from Andrew Wood. And we're kind of talking about, I suppose, blooding new players and so on, uh, both during the Six Nations and potentially in the summer. But Andrew's question is about our more established players. And he says a lot of players that would have been seen to have had a lot of miles on the clock seem to have come into decent form in the last few months. Uh, he mentioned Sexton, Henderson, Furlong, Earls in the last two games. Is this down to the enforced break that COVID gave them, both physically and mentally, 
And if so, should optionality on sabbatical years be explored a bit more for senior players, like giving them an option for a, a summer tour fully off on years where there's no World Cup or Lions? It might help our quest to blood more players and also keep things fresh for some of those older players. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Certainly speaking to um, you know, some of the older statesmen, they did feel um, that the break they got for COVID from particularly contact, but also just the, the mental break, um, from that environment, you know, uh, week in, week out was, was good for them. And maybe it would extend um, their careers. I don't think we need to have a formal sabbatical system. You give most players a sabbatical, they're thinking about, you know, getting their agent to ring Japanese clubs and, and, and top up the old uh, the old pension fund. So it's hard to get guys to take compulsory breaks. Um, and as Like the Kiwis, the Kiwis manage, um, I don't think that would work really in Ireland. But definitely for summer tours, I mean, you know, that's the case on an individual basis uh, where, you know, the coach just says, look, you don't need to, to travel um, this summer. I know Warren Gatton's on that um, in the past in, in Wales, etc. And, and on a case-by-case basis. So I think, yeah, I think that would benefit players. Um, uh, but it's great to see, you know, particularly Johnny and, um, yeah, say Johnny and Connor, like they were bang on form. Um, and that's, that's credit to them, and uh, it shows you how st- still they're they're so important to us. A question along similar lines here from Robin Dempsey, but not so much about Ireland. It's about the Lions tour, and uh, the question is: with the Lions tour now confirmed to be played in South Africa, will it become incredibly challenging for the Lions due to the lack of extracurricular activities? Players often talk about talk about tour highlights being the chance to experience local culture, mingling with the local and Lions fans experiencing the atmosphere around matches uh, and the opportunities to enjoy each other's company with COVID likely eliminating these activities will the tour just become a dreary slog that's probably the concern Bernard you've obviously toured probably more than Murray and myself and been in those environments but you're talking about seven weeks two months or so you can FaceTime home and apart from that like there's uh there's not a great deal of uh I don't know joviality or whatever yeah I think it's a it's a huge issue and I think in fairness um, if if it goes ahead and it's seven weeks in South Africa, Gatland is a is a, is a pretty good uh, head coach to have because he really gets that that balance and that importance of of um, of relaxation, etc. He's not a, the most intense. He's not an Eddie Jones or a Joe Schmidt in terms of how he runs the environment, and I think that's that's going to be absolutely crucial. Um, look at it's a Lions tour. You know, people on the outside say, "Oh, seven weeks." How bad, but you saw what you know. You read what Ellis Genge said around you know how he found this lockdown in in in, um, in England's camp and and how it it didn't suit him at all. And it will be a big issue. It'll be a big issue because like even you know players like to to mix with the general public. They like to go out for a bite to eat somewhere else, not in the hotel. They like to play golf, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so yeah, it'll, it'll have to be factored in. But I, I think. You know, I think they'll overcome it for sure. Um, but a lot of it'll be down to, um, you know, uh, Dumper, who's the Lions manager, uh, Gatland, and the coaching staff he put together and the leadership group to make sure they try and find ways of a few quizzes, Zoom quizzes, Gav. Maybe you can uh, you can offer your services, uh, get a few going. But look at they'll uh, they'll have to find ways to keep themselves occupied anyway. No, I think I'll be busy those weeks. Uh, (laughs) Seeing your faces, seeing your faces every week is just enough. Any more Zoom for me and uh, 
I don't know what I'm going to do. I uh, want to ask you as well that about that, Murray, because like, okay, they're going to miss out on all of the external activities, uh, kind of uh, amalgamating with South African society and the cities they're in and all those little things that are laid out as well by the host nation, you know, that, that make the tour quite special for players and even for fans watching from home. Um, the, the only option, I guess, is to just try and enjoy each other's company. I know, unlike in, uh, was it Robin Dempsey who sent the question? Um, there was kind of inverted commas around that as though it's uh, maybe a little bit of a trope, but you are away with uh, 30, 35, 40 peers, whatever it is. Uh, you might not get on with all of them, but you'll probably be able to identify a few of the guys with whom you play or a few of the guys from other countries who you do relate to. And without breaking into different cliques and all that, I guess you just have to treat it as nearly a job and enjoy the guys that you do enjoy and make the most of it that way. Yeah, rugby players are very good at making the best of whatever the, the circumstances are, as they're doing at the moment. Even being in the stadiums, it's a little bit obviously joyless without people there, but they've kind of made their own energy from it. And I'm sure the Lions will be doing something similar. Piss-ups in the hotel rather than out and about on the town. Um, and I saw that clip of Doddy Weir again the other day from the 97 documentary uh, where he blames mistaken identity for being caught on <laughs> on a night out in a nightclub when he's supposed to be in the, the team hotel. Obviously, that won't be happening because the the perpetrator will be literally at the centre of an international outrage. Um, but they'll they'll make the best of it. And a lot of guys are kind of in the older stages of their career. They'll be just relieved that it's going ahead this summer. I think. Um, obviously, postponement would have put a got a couple of guys possibly out of the window for for selection. Um, and I think people are complaining about it now and saying. Oh, don't do it without fans. But this is the world we live in. And come the summer, you're going to be watching it and you're going to be loving it because you have nothing else to do unless things change drastically. So uh, I suppose we just get on and, and make the best of it. Going to chat a bit Pro 14 and look ahead to the Pro 14 final naturally enough, but Southern Hemisphere. Uh, Super Rugby, Murray. A few developments there. It looks like uh, we're going to get those two Pacific Island franchises, which is amazing. World Rugby, is it £1.2 million pounds I think they're going to invest in it per year to begin with, per club, something along those lines. You, you probably have the info there. Um, but Fiji and Drua and uh, Moana Pacifica will be the, the two nations. It looks like Moana Pacifica will be based in Samoa because uh, originally there, were, there was talk of them actually being a kind of an Auckland-based Pacific team, wasn't there? But it looks like they're going to actually be on a Pacific island uh, instead. Yeah, I think that's TVC um, about where they're going to be located this has been going on for a while in in the background and new zealand rugby have really been kind of driving and facilitating it um and working with those unions and world rugby have come in and probably got a, a lot of the credit now for for throwing a bit of cash behind it it's not enough money to run those those two um organizations at all they put appeal out sorry fiji and drua did for uh, 10 million new zealand dollars so around 6 million euro very recently they're going to need private backing and private funding to actually run themselves so it's great absolutely that world rugby are putting a bit of cash in and lending some of their high performance expertise but there's definitely a bit of a way to go with this it is just brilliant to see that the will and the desire is there within rugby itself like for too long the big nations have defended their status and guarded what they have and this is an opening up hopefully of that because you know fiji and samoan tongan players they're so omnipresent in rugby i think there was a calculation that's 20 percent of all professional players are of pacific island kind of heritage or, or associate with the pacific Islands. so that underlines what is being contributed to the game and it's it's great that hopefully we're going to get 
a bit put back into it. Trailing rugby, obviously. And Fiji and Drew have been playing in the Australian tier below Super Rugby for the last couple of years. They actually won it in 2018 in just their second attempt. And, and it was class to see. They played lovely rugby, as people associate with Fiji anyway. Um, and this will hopefully help the national team. It'll help some players be able to stay at home rather than go abroad. Um, again, obviously, there'll still be big offers coming from abroad. And, and who knows if the Drua and the Pacifica team will be able to even compete with that. But on the whole, it's really exciting. I, I hope this goes ahead next year. I hope they get the private backing they need. And I hope they make a success of it and it's sustainable because we've talked about it loads in the pod, Gav. The game needs to grow beyond the the kind of little restrictive borders it has at the moment. Um, and this is a positive sign. Yeah, Bert, your thoughts on it? Yeah, I think it's positive. Um, obviously, with the South Africans going to play in the north there's a there's a gap there and um yeah i think it'd be fascinating we we need to find a way to to help the pacific islands um, nations and and having two teams representing them um is it can only be good so hopefully to get a look at it, as, as murray said it's not a done deal yet it's a it's a it's a hope and aspiration um finance will be an issue but if we're, you know word will be do spend a lot of money on trying to develop the game in tier two and tier three three countries particularly world cup years but i think this is something that could give them sustainable a sustainable chance of, of being a little bit more self-sufficient but also um being more competitive which is what we want we, we want the game to um to grow and and for more teams to be able to beat each other before we look ahead to the pro 14 final Bert, you were breaking news in the whatsapp group earlier in relation to the pro 14 or rather the rainbow cup and potential law trials that it seems the Pro 14 are trying to get approval from World Rugby to introduce, uh, including a captain's challenge. I just saw um, uh, a, a letter that was sent f- to to World Rugby looking to for permission to implement red card replacements. So basically red card, the team plays with 14 men for 20 minutes. Um, but after this time, you can bring on a sub. Okay, so that's one captain's challenge. So each team's allowed one captain's challenge in the match. Um, and the last one is the goal line dropout. Uh, so if you're held up over the line um, or knock-ons that occur in goal, when the ball is grounded in goal, it'll be a 22 dropout. Uh, sorry, it'll be a dropout from anywhere near the goal line. So effectively, it, it, it could affect the pick-and-goal game that we see. Uh, actually, I sent some clips for for the, uh, to, for Premier ahead of the, the final because Leinster have really perfected this... this um, quick tap uh, with a real organised structure and a series of pick and goes. So effectively, if you're defending that, if you can hold them up one of those times, um, instead of getting a five metre scrum, you would have a, a dropout from your own goal line, which means you should be able to send them back 50 metres. I'm not sure if I if actually agree with this at all, to be honest. Um, but it's something that they're looking at for the Rainbow Cup. So it's the Pro 14 organisers asking for permission to implement this for the Rainbow Cup. Um, and they would have to get World Rugby approval. Now, we're used to this, things being trialled in the Southern Hemisphere first, and I know it is being trialled, uh, the elements we trialled there, but it's probably the first time we've kind of got in early in this side of the world, and not uh, like we're not first up, we're not first into it, but we're, we're in early, and it'd be interesting to see how it, how it evolves if World Rugby agree, which I, I presume they will. Murray, I know you're a fan of the Captain's Challenge. Yeah, I've, I've found it fascinating. They're doing that in Super Rugby Aotearoa in New Zealand. And there's been some really interesting case studies where maybe even the decision in the end wasn't bang on, but it adds a bit of drama and it gives players an outlet for those frustrating moments when they're certain 
that the wrong decision has been made. And you saw a couple of examples, even last weekend, uh, when Fiku was running over to Luke Pearson and appealing to him, please have a look up on the screen. We got the ball down. There's players around him. Maybe even Johnny Sexton and NLS Genji, use that as your challenge. Um, so it's it's a it's a really interesting, and I suppose it's almost like an entertainment tool. We don't want to slow the game down completely. It's definitely worth reiterating that. Like the constant TMO stoppages and lengthy ones don't help anyone. Um, but but it is fair to the players, fairer to the players. I think when there's a big moment, potentially decisive in the game, it'll reduce probably the instances of errors. And um, I think that one will work really well. The red card one. I can't really get my head around yet. They have it in Australia and New Zealand. Um, and a couple of examples so far, the other, the team who's lost the bear hasn't actually conceded during that time. Um, so yeah, it's probably been decisive. Um, and does it undersell the, I suppose, the severity of foul play? Does it deter you enough? That's the, the question mark I'd have around that. The goal line dropouts have been really interesting. The, the Hurricanes actually scored from one. Jordy Barrett absolutely nailed his little kick over the five metre. Um, and I think the thing in there is to do away with a series of five meter scrums, like set collapse, reset collapse. And I suppose most of the laws or a lot of the laws are kind of influenced by that. Even in Australia now, if you kick the restart out in the full, you you start with a, a tap back on halfway rather than a scrum. Obviously, they're just trying to speed up the game and, and reduce those long reset passages. So I'd be fascinated to see if this happens. I presume obviously World Rugby will get behind it. There is. A push from them really to to get these kind of things in and yeah bring it on let's experiment a little bit and see if it makes a better product yeah just the rant co- incoming right uh, i do agree it's trying to reduce scrums which is nonsense okay it's a get out from referees uh like look at how fascinating the ireland england scrum uh battle was and and Tyke Furlong, you know, um, outsmarting, um, you, you know, uh, and, and playing the rules against England. That was a factor in our winning. Uh, um, I mean, I think that's, I, I can understand why they want to quicken up the game, but a, a good scrum battle, there's there's a few people out there who actually enjoy it, right? And it's important, okay? So don't take that away from us. Don't make it rugby league. And secondly, the red card stuff. Uh, uh, I don't, I, like, I, I'd hate to see why, um, we're trying to make the game safer. There's been a big increase in red cards. Players' behaviours hasn't adapted yet, right? And suddenly then they're reading about, you know, um, a rule change where red cards actually aren't as as effective or aren't as detrimental to the team's chance of success. So um, I, I don't agree with that either. Um, uh, I, I think a red card should be a red card. And if you give away a, a red card offence after five minutes with a moment of madness, your team should suffer. And uh, I just... I don't see how that ties in with making the game safer, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, I definitely i am on the fence. I, Captain Challenger, I think, is interesting for sure. Um, the other two, they can they can keep them. <laughs> the other two can get in the bin. Yeah. I, agree on the, I agree on the red cards. I think people often talk about, oh, red cards are too, de- they're deciding games. But really, the actions that led to the red card is what's deciding a red card. So, yeah, I'd agree in terms of being strong with the sanctions because the behavior is taking time to change and um i feel sympathy absolutely for players in some of those instances but uh, it just kind of i don't know it just reduces the effect of it yeah there are other strands to the red card thing i think in fairness like i i agree with you the two of you i i do think it's not enough of a deterrent if you're 
if you are the individual being sent off and you know you'll be replaced within 20 minutes and you know that generally speaking a team can actually perform quite capably for 20 minutes with 14 men they'll have done drills in order to do so they'll do more of them if this rule is introduced maybe for a certain type of, of offense it might work but i don't think you could introduce it as a blanket rule because if a guy say if there's a, a player who eye gouges another player are you telling me that he should be replaced after 20 minutes that his team shouldn't suffer like it's I, I kind of understand the the line of thinking when it pertains to borderline hits or high hits in that there isn't the intent to actually maim somebody or hurt somebody in those challenges. But again, optically, I'm not sure it's a great look to be uh, diluting the, the sanction for uh, an offence which you're re- really trying to remove from the game at the moment for the sake of player safety. And we'll see. And look, we don't know if they're even going to be brought in, I guess. Yeah, the other one I thought we might get up here, and I'd say a lot of people are waiting for in this part of the world, given our kicking strengths, is the the fifty twenty two and twenty two fifty. And you've seen Rob Carney, like straight away, he's got got on top of it, um, and he's he's aiming to make those kicks. Whereas some of the Aussie players, it looks to me like they're not even aware that that law trial law is, is exists. It kind of just faded out completely last year. Um, but you can imagine players up here really trying to exploit that tactically and in terms of their kicking skill sets. There have been a few examples. There was the Johnny May one against France. It would have been a 22-50 or even a 50-22. I can't remember exactly which one it was. Um, and even Joey Carberry did a 50-22 in that Benetton or Scarlet's game for Munster. So there's guys with those skill sets to exploit it. Um, and it would be interesting if we saw it up in this side of the world. Twoid, let's chat then about Joey Carberry and the lads. And Leinster too, ahead of the big one this weekend. Kind of a strange one to preview or even speak about Murray because... The form books and so on can nearly be thrown out, just considering how different the teams are going to look this weekend compared to how they've looked over previous weeks. And I guess the only thing we can kind of, or the only sort of form we can uh, deduce from is probably the run of this very fixture over the last few years, where Leinster have been by far the dominant team. Uh, Monsters seem to be closing the gap, and it's a question of whether or not that gap has closed fully, or at least can be closed fully on a given day this weekend absolutely the, the three most there's the fixture seems so frequent now doesn't it we restarted with it back in august and we've had two more since and they absolutely have been really tight clashes 27 25 the first time around and, and hanrahan had, had that chance from wide out on the right to to equalize it was 13 3 i think um, and then you had the the moment of brilliance from ross Byrne grubbing through just in in the kind of end game the the most recent fixture so it absolutely has been close and <laughs> Munster definitely for me are, are, have closed that gap and are really really competitive with Leinster but they just have to be utterly ruthless and clinical Bernard mentioned how good Leinster are down in, in the 22 Munster generally are against most opposition but just looking back through games they've had a number of missed chances in those last three fixtures and off the tee as well I tallied up they've missed 14 points off the tee in the last three games whereas Leinster have only missed three and the goal kicking percentage for Leinster is 91% and Mon- uh, Munster's is 58% I think so something as basic and obvious as that is has been really decisive a couple of missed penalties here and there from Munster um, and then they're looking for those moments that they can show their attack has made progress under Stephen Arkham for the biggest of fixtures Carberry being back um, without trying to heap all the pressure on him and that he's the only guy in the team. Um, that should help it a little bit and, and certainly there's a couple more threats for Leinster to worry about there. But I anticipate another absolute 
battle where the margins, as we said in test rugby, I think it's going to be similar. It's going to be one or two little moments yet again. Um, but it does feel like a little bit of an opportunity for Munster. There's no um, role of Leinster momentum coming into this final. Obviously, a lot of internationals back in. They've got to integrate it, as do Munster to an extent as well. Um, and it feels like a chance, what, 10 years on to finally grab a trophy. And it would be brilliant for the rivalry if Munster could do it, I think. Bernard, from a Leinster point of view, it probably felt as though uh, this rivalry or, or so-called rivalry was nearly non-existent for a while. Um, even in recent years, you kind of hear from people within the Leinster setup, as much as they would never say this kind of in a front-facing or public way, that they Monster was a game they were expecting to win or they themselves expected to win. Like They knew it was going to be a, a tussle and it was going to be a physical game, but ultimately like the results didn't lie um, and they were superior for a long time and, and may remain superior. It, the complexion does seem to have changed now a little bit, I'd say even for some of the people involved in Leinster. They know that not only will it be a kind of a, a physical tussle this time around, but it's actually a game that they're in danger of losing, which is really rare for them, you'd have to be honest about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I think Leinster are warned. I don't think it'll be a shock. Um, they delayed the last game in Thoman Park. Um, you know, Leinster, when they analyse that, they're, when they even in the dressing room going back up on the bus, they know that they got out of jail. I mean, to be, you know, 10-3 in, in, in the 41st minute um, and they can see the penalty and Munster could go in 13-3 to hit the post. Munster give away a, a, a stupid penalty, you know, and, and end up going in uh, 10-6. And then, like, in the 67th minute, Conor Murray put a great kick into 22. Leinster, or, or Munster were, yeah, 10-6 up still. 12 minutes to go, field position, and they allow Leinster, Luke McGrath, break up the blind side. Just little moments, and then they give away a penalty uh, for being offside. Gavin Coombs gives away a penalty. Ross Byrne gets touched, and they score from the strike play, and that's the difference. They get the conversion... It's 13 10. Uh, so, like, it was little small moments that Munster haven't managed. The goal kicking has been a huge part of it. He, like, I do think for, for Munster to win this weekend, Joey has to be 90%. You know what I mean? They have to take their their, their shots um, at goal. And, and you know, you, t- you have a better percentage. I think they've already beaten them in those last three games. Uh, they've already beaten them once for just kicking their goals. So, they're not a million miles away. Um, Munster should be absolutely desperate for this. This should be their be-all and end-all. Um, and likewise, it depends on just how, if Leinster can get themselves into the right frame of mind to quash this potential rebellion. And and if Leinster beat them with a with a bit of a mixed team in this final, it could set Munster back. You know what I mean? And if you want to be dominant, and I know the Crusaders talk about, you know, they, they use the teaming of t- kings and what do kings do? They reign. Like if Leinster want to create a real legacy, more than even they've had already, uh, I think beating Munster with Joey playing and and you know the disruption Leinster have had could set Munster back further. You know, what I mean it's a it's a massive it's a massive um, game of jeopardy for for Munster not to not to go and win. I think it's actually more pressure on them, ironically, than I think there is on Leinster. It's a fair point. Yeah, how do you anticipate the teams will line up? Like that's been a lot of or the subject of a lot of conjecture speculation do you reckon it is a case that Leinster will kind of mix and match obviously the, their hand will be forced yeah, a little I, bit by injury I think Leinster yeah forced by injury I think Leo and, and Johan are allowed to pick who they want from what I gather so it's a case of game time freshness 
um, strength and depth in, in, in that position. So let's take Johnny Sexton, for example. We know Ross Byrne got to start the last final um, because he played a lot more games um, and Johnny sat on the, on, on the bench. Um, now Johnny, Johnny didn't play all the games in the Six Nations, but you know, I, I would, I would say maybe Johnny go on the bench. You know, uh, just as an example, because they have a, a very good um, backup option. Ty Furlong, you know, Porter maybe needs a start. You know what I mean? Porter might need a start with with Ty Furlong on, on the on the bench. The back row is going to be fascinating. Like Conan hasn't had a huge amount of game time. He was excellent against England. Um, you throw him back in there, but like if you're going to be loyal to the likes of Josh Murphy and um, Reese Ruddock and, and Scott Penny recently, like they they've been pretty good week in week out. Um, and the big thing for like the Pro 14 for Leinster has always been about the squad. And uh, they play more players than everybody else. They have to rotate more than everybody else because internationals. And it at some stage Leo has to give them finals, you know. And we saw that with Ross over Johnny, but. I think this week is going to be a huge week in terms of selection um, and in terms of how many opportunities you can give to people. And I don't think there's a huge difference between Leinster's second string and first string. Obviously, there's a huge amount of international caps, etc. But I think the reason why Leinster are, are, are dominant in the Pro 14 is their depth is very good. So they're, they're 15 to 30 and they're 30 to 45 is, is better than everybody else. Um, but it's going to be such an interesting selection call from... From Cullen and Lancaster to see how much they can reward the the, the players who've been brilliant for them in the Pro 14, but also with the the necessity to try and win the trophy um, and how they, how they play it. But I think it'll be strong. I think I think Leinster will be very strong as well. And if Leinster lose, it won't be you know it won't be second string team that Munster beat. It'll be a proper contest. What do you expect, Murray, on that front with the likes of say Sexton, Furlong? Obviously, we know that. Ryan, Connors, Ring Rose are all ruled out definitively. Uh, and that actually made me think that maybe Cullen might be a small bit less, um, I don't know, experimental is probably the wrong word, but less likely to, to mix and match. Uh, but do you anticipate that, say, Sexton in particular would be, uh, would find himself on the bench after two weeks in a row in which he's played full 80 minutes? Yeah, like it is a really tough coaching decision, but I'd almost be surprised if those frontline Ireland guys don't play. Um, because then if like if Leinster lose to Munster and they give them a bit of a leg up in this rivalry you're sitting there with massive regrets about not playing guys who to be frank about it you've decided for over a long period of time are better they're the best in their in their position um, so I, I yeah I'd almost be surprised if they didn't have Johnny Sexton that team like he's Johnny Sexton doesn't want to sit on the bench I know it's not all about his desire in it and they've absolutely as Bernard says they've made that decision before much to his displeasure um, but it is a final, and I don't know, I'd be surprised if they leave themselves in that position and also give Munster that little fill-up of, of saying, listen, look at this, like they're not even picking their captain and their best player at out-half. Um, so it is a, it's a massive decision for them. It is easier for Munster, like it's going to be full whack, full bore, Joey Carberry at 10, I'd, I'd be shocked if he's not at 10, Byrne, O'Mahony, Sander, all of them back, like Sander's playing for a trophy before he he finishes up and, and that's going to be a massive emotive part of it but yeah it is it's fascinating for it would have been fascinating to see those Leinster selection meetings and and see them agonizing over it because as Bernard says there have been so many guys who've been so good to get them into this position and it's really tough to take if someone comes back from from Ireland camp swans in and, and grabs your jersey um, and, t- and maybe takes a medal from from you and, and, and the work you've done before that and um, so my own expectation 
and my own inkling really if i was in their shoes would be pick the best guys and, and make sure you you win that final on the monster side of things bernard you'd have to say that the international uh window has probably benefited some of their front frontline players Ty Byrne, in fairness, went into the Six Nations in phenomenal form for Munster. He might have been, like, he was one of the standout players in Europe uh, this season so far. He was actually superb against Leinster last time when they came to Thoman Park, but he's upped it to a significant degree for Ireland and cast aside any doubts about his size and some of the sticks with which people used to beat him as a prospective international. Uh, he might have been the best player in the entire tournament, to be totally honest. Uh, and then you have even someone like Conor Murray, who has been playing well, I think, actually regularly playing well at provincial level. But maybe we haven't seen, we, we definitely haven't seen the kind of best of him. And he resembled that, I think, against England in a lot of ways. And he's coming into it in fine form. And that probably applies to a few more as well. Uh, you also have the, the uh, situation with Peter Romani, in which usually he'd be coming back from the Six Nations actually probably a little bit physically battered. And in this situation, he, he should be well-rested and fairly fresh. So... Once they're actually coming into this in, in fine fettle as well, the international window not necessarily being an inhibitor, but maybe something that might imbue some of their more important players. Yeah, I uh, know. And Keith Earls is, is, in, is in great form. Um, and I just think, you know, and, and I, I said, it, said it during the week about, you know, it'd be great for, for CJ to win a trophy with Munster before he leaves. And, and it would be great. But like, what about Billy Holland? What about Stephen Archer, Peter Manning, Keith Earls, who... You know, let's be honest. Um, have had a long time where they've been incredible servants to to Munster, and and some of them got uh, recognition at international level in terms of Six Nations, etc. But the, you know, they haven't had a success for a long time for for Munster. Um, and Billy's obviously retiring, um, at the end of the year, and and who knows how many more opportunities, you know. Like Severzi and Peter will get uh, with Munster, so I think they need to to take it. And you look at that Munster team, the the, the best team they can put out on paper. Okay, they're going to be missing Snyman, um, but it's pretty strong. It's very it's very strong. And uh, like say you go Murray, Carberry, Farrell, Delande, you know that's 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 class. You know what I mean? Um, and. Yeah, I, I just think it's 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 absolutely uh, massive. They're going to go into it with confidence because they have been building quite nicely. Um, they're playing a good brand of rugby. Um, they've won a lot of tight games this year. You know, um, a lot of games at the death where they were in trouble and they just they they found a way to win. Um, and I think I think that's going to be crucial for them. But they they against Leinster, you need to be nearly flawless. You you can't give them an opportunity because they, they'll take it so that's the next step for them you can give Cardiff or or Scarlet or Edinburgh you know a, a chance and you can catch them at the end I think with Leinster um you know you, they need to be better and it's it's their ability to to manage those you know key moments of games and and limit limit the the, the concession of points when you're when Leinster are on top and maximize it when when you have uh momentum so yeah it's 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 gonna be a great final I mean you know, I, I know some of the Welsh and Scots are saying, oh, it's boring, it's it's two Irish teams again. But they're the two best teams. They're the two best teams, and uh, they deserve to be there. Uh, they've both been, you know, dominant in their conference. And, uh, yeah, like I know people said, oh, playoffs, blah, blah, blah. I still think if there's playoffs, Leinster and Munster win, win the semi-finals, and, and they go and, and, and play a final anyway. So um, hopefully it's a, it's a fitting occasion. They've definitely been the two standout teams, Murray. And I think, yeah, maybe in past seasons there have been 
Leinster and then a couple of teams in around that like second tier, if you like, where uh, semi-finalists, basically, they've all been like on a relatively even keel. Whereas this time around, it does feel as though Munster have been conclusively the second best team in the tournament and up there with Leinster, really. Um, so it is a worthy final. How do you see it playing out? Like, do we expect this to be sort of similarly tight to that last game in Thoman Park? Could we uh, could we see something a little bit more expansive and more expressive like that game in, in the Aviva last season, I think, um, where there was kind of 50-odd points shared between them? Mm, probably somewhere in between. If you think of the last, the most recent game, like Munster did play with nice variety in attack in the first half. I think of JJ Hanrin cross-kick, there was some nice wide passing. Even the first possession they had, I remember CJ Stander linking out the back and they moved the ball to the width on the left. And that was really encouraging. In the second half, when they were in that winning position, they probably went away from that. And I can understand that. I can understand heavily going to your kicking game to try and maintain a lead. But maybe the lesson in that for them was to, to actually keep going, keep stretching Leinster in that different way. And as you say, they, they did that. I know they scored two tries in that 27-25 game when Leinster were down to 14 men with a yellow card. But again, they showed themselves that there's reward for that bit of ambition. So I would hope that, you know, in those tough moments, they do back themselves a little bit with that. And they do use some of those nice kind of attacking shapes and some of those nice strike plays that Larkham has brought in and that Carberry's head is on a swivel and he's looking to make decisions and getting good info from his from his outside backs absolutely that has to happen we know Leinster can grind teams out of it we know they can also play and open up a little bit depending on, on exactly what they need in those circumstances and Munster have to have that variety and have to be able to match them in that sense so I would imagine yeah it's going to be similarly tight in terms of the contest and every single second and every single decision mattering um but you would hope to see Munster just be that little bit braver across the course of the 80 minutes and not just uh, to put themselves in a, in a good position. Give us a prediction, Murray, and give us a kind of a percentage of how certain you are of your own prediction. Oh, well, I'm, I'm rattled after last week's horrific prediction, so <laughs> this is not made with confidence. Uh, Leinster are, I still think, a better team, and I, I do think they'll select strongly, um, and they've got different weapons as I said as well as an ability to win those big moments Bernard mentioned that Luke McGraw one thought that was a brilliant example um, so for those reasons uh, albeit a, a similarly close game I'll say Leinster by, by three points Leinster by three Birch final word to you uh, I think Leinster are a better team but I think it's Munster's time Le- Munster by three interesting what's the deciding vote Gav draw <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it all again next week <laughs> well the reality is we're going to have a load of Irish derbies um, after Europe again uh, because the first the Rainbow Cup is going to be South Africans playing each other down there and, and us playing each other again so uh, Munster-Leinster the, the, it's going to continue I think the game that keeps on giving we'll be seeing plenty more of it and uh, I will say I'll actually yeah Munster by the score I think I, I kind of it's a feeling in my waters more so than anything scientific um, as it usually is to be fair just you know something of something about it maybe they <laughs> maybe they will want it slightly more purely because Leinster have won so many in succession and because of the uh, impending departures of some of the staples of that team and we saw that effect even in Ireland over the weekend and how they were able to finally put together a signature performance signature win so i think monster might do the same so i guess um in conclusion leinster would probably win by 15 or 16 points 
<laughs> based on that infamous prediction yeah exactly yeah gents thanks a million as always we'll catch you next week um, or you'll be back as well on Monday with Don Tulin looking back on the weekend's rugby for Rugby Weekly Extra that's available to the 42 members members.42.e if you want to sign up there and support our independent sports journalism get all of the extra podcasts and content that are available to members this podcast was brought to you in association with William Hill. Remember to gamble responsibly and visit dunlui.net for more information on that front. Mind yourselves, have a good weekend. Enjoy the full 14 final and everything else. Chat to you next week. Till then, take it easy. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. Leinster could have me five mil a year. I wouldn't go. It is Robbie Weekly. Getting the first pass. Oh! Oh!